Now is the time to take the next step in your leadership journey. TU Dublin's internationally accredited executive MBA is a program of personal growth and career transformation. Our graduates have transitioned to senior leadership roles and have established and scaled their own businesses. Join our executive MBA and achieve your leadership potential. Applications are now open. Visit tudublin.ie forward slash MBA. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and we're going behind the curtain today. My guest is um, Peter Cardwell, who was a special advisor to four cabinet ministers um, and really worked at the heart of government. And look, spads, as we call them, it's a bit of a shadowy job that if you're not in kind of the bubble, the Westminster bubble as such, you maybe don't often hear about maybe the... uh, most kind of, you know, um, famous special advisors over the years are people like Dominic Cummings and Alistair Campbell. But Peter's written a book on special advisors, and we're going to talk to him about that, but also just about the general state of government and how he sees uh, the future playing out for both the Tories and Labour. Let's hear what he has to say. So, Peter, thank you so much for coming on to Pod's Own Country this week. It's a real pleasure to have you. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Jerry. How are you? Yes, not too bad, thank you. And uh, thankfully for listeners who can't see where I am, I'm uh, back in my little podcast fort, which is created from blankets and um, clothes horses. So it's all very professional at the YP, um, as usual. Um, look, there's loads of ground that I want to cover with you today. But to kick off, for our listeners that don't know you, who are you? Why should they care? <laughs> Why should they care? Well, maybe they won't care. Maybe they'll listen and not care. Uh, my name is Peter Cardwell. I was a special advisor in government for three and a half years. I worked in uh, four different departments for four different ministers. So special advisors are everything from a bag carrier to uh, someone who reminds the, you know, briefs the minister on what to say for the 10 past 8 interview on the Today programme, as well as reminding them to have a pee beforehand. So you're kind of a friend, um, advisor, obviously, you're a bag carrier, you're someone who knows the policy and also speaks to the media. And there are two main types of special advisors. There are policy advisors um, who get into the weeds of everything that the government is trying to do. And there are media advisors, which was what I did, uh, which was talking to to people like you, Jerry, and uh, uh, briefing them on what was going on with the government and perhaps doing a bit of spinning as well. No, surely not. Never. No, of course, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> well, lucky you getting to speak to uh, to people like me. And you've got a book out, haven't you? I know it's been um, on the shelves for a few months. I'm sure many people have uh, got their hands on it, which is The Secret Life of Special Advisors, which is, I guess, exposing what this kind of sometimes mysterious job is. Because outside of, you know, weird people like me and you who kind of live and breathe this stuff it's not really a job people know about is it no and it's a very strange job anyway and it's hard to kind of put into words although i tried to with the secret life of special advisors i suppose yes it's been out for a little while now and i think it might be uh, i might have put some sort of hex or curse uh, with, with the book because um there were i didn't criticize many people in the book but three people I did criticise in some way, even a small way, have now uh, lost their jobs. So Donald <laughs> Cummings, Lee Kane, and Piers Morgan uh, have all have all gone uh, from their from their jobs. So um, and the book's been out for I think three months, and three of them have gone. So I'm wondering who's in month number four. Uh, that's that's I wonder who's next really. 
<laughs> oh, your power um, precedes you, doesn't it? As, yeah, <laughs> as, we, yeah. Yeah, as we carry on. So I'm really interested in this because, like I say, I obviously speak to, and the term that um, people in Westminster use is, you know, spads. I speak to spads all the time. But what is the job? I mean, you touched on it a little bit there. It sounds a bit like a nanny in some ways. <laughs> yeah, well, you've sort of got to be Mary Poppins, I suppose, or Nanny McPhee or something. You know, you've got to you've got to be able to deal with any situation, I suppose. But I mean, there are ninety six thousand civil servants in Whitehall in Westminster, and uh, they work in all the different government departments. There are only something like a hundred or one hundred and fifteen special advisors. So usually, uh, cabinet ministers will have two or three, and then there are quite a few that work in Downing Street, as you, you of course, know, Jerry. So it's, uh, it, it, it is a weird job. It is a strange job. And it's hard to know exactly how to do it. And there's no manual in terms of how to do it. Maybe my book is the manual, I don't know. But everybody does it slightly differently. And because there's, there isn't a huge amount of accountability either, you have two approvals. One is Downing Street, one is your minister. And if you lose either one of those approvals, then you go, which is why I went. Uh, Downing Street decided, or Dominic Cummings decided, um, I was to, for the high jump. But um, you, there's no real, um, there's no real way in which you should necessarily do the job. What I tried to do was just do every single thing that was in the best interests of my ministers. They didn't know every every single thing I was up to. Um, of course, they didn't because I, I had a lot of autonomy. But essentially, I was a sort of enforcer, not just with the civil service to try to make sure the agenda was driven through, uh, but also with the media to sort of say, are we getting a fair hearing? Are our uh, policies being written about and broadcasted about properly, um, and also to try to promote the minister as well to make sure they were uh, to to the forefront, not just in terms of things which were popular, but also things that were listened to. I mean, it's interesting. There's some media, of course, that uh, you know that that is perhaps not the most uh, listened to or the most read. But as, if it's read by people in Westminster, or if it's uh, if it's read by the Prime Minister, well, that's the kind of media you want to get into because every uh, cabinet minister is thinking about the next reshuffle and they may be in a good job now, but they want to be in a better one. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, it is a really interesting job. And I always um, feel quite a lot of sympathy, actually, for spads at kind of, you know, reshuffle time and things like that because you can be out on your ear kind of within a within a second, can't you? It's not like you get really a notice period as such. Yeah, well, I was a journalist for 10 years and lost my job a couple of times uh, there. Broadcast journalism especially can be can be pretty brutal, although I know newspapers can too. But yes, politics is brutal. And uh, just, you know, you can be, as Piers Morgan put it, puts it, you can be cock of the walk one day and a feather duster the next. Um, certainly I was uh, someone in the, um, in the Ministry of Justice who had quite a lot of power, quite a lot of influence uh, the year of the Lord Chancellor of the United Kingdom I was in Downing Street you know two or three times a week talking to pretty imp influential people and uh, civil servants were uh, you know very interested in what I thought about things because they wanted to steer and what to do and then I was you know told that's it off you go uh, and then I, I had no job and that that's fine that's the game you know I, I did it for three and a half years and that's always the prospect and it's never forever and um, you can obviously uh, be in, in some jobs for a very, very long period of time, but very few people are in politics anyway, never mind in special advising. And it's really interesting, actually, uh, with Dominic Cummings, because he's a he's a fascinating character. I actually have a lot more time for him than, than many people do, even though he, he signed off my sacking. But um, <laughs> it's interesting with him, because I think if you look at the true people who really tried to radically change either the civil service or Downing Street or how, how special advisors work, over the past 10 years, there are probably three of them. So Steve Hilton, who worked for uh, David Cameron, 
there's Nick Timothy who worked for Theresa May and there's Dominic Cummings and none of them lasted more than about I think Steve Hilton lasted about two years the other two lasted I, I, well uh, Nick Timothy was a year and uh, Dominic Cummings was less than 18 months in Downing Street so it's really interesting how how you know you're a political mayfly and I wonder what you think the reason for that is. You know, the, these people, you say there haven't been many that want to come in and kind of shake up the system a bit. Why does it seem like they don't really get far in doing that? Is it is it just too big? Yes, it's them against the system, essentially. Um, I don't agree with every single thing Dominic Cummings did. I don't agree with every single thing Steve Hilton or Nick Timothy did. Uh, although I have a heck of a lot of time for Nick and he's a good man. But it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's too big. It's a huge system. It's an entrenched system. There are lots of uh, vested interests in the civil service. There are lots of vested interests uh, politically as well in terms of people who, who don't want things to change necessarily or want things to work in their own way. Everybody has an agenda from the uh, youngest civil servant. And also, I think there's a myth as well. I, I, I'm quite a big fan of the civil service, and I grew to respect it more the longer I, I spent in government. But I think that a number of people, uh, you know, falsely think think about the permanent civil service most civil servants move their jobs every year two years three years and there's often not a huge amount of institutional memory or indeed expertise from them as well so when you talk about uh, politicians or you know perhaps cabinet ministers what can you really achieve in a year and a half or two years the usual length of time someone spends in a cabinet ministerial position well the question may well be asked of civil servants as well and unless you start saying to civil servants, well, we're not going to promote you, we're not going to move you, which is a huge incentive for people to join the civil service because it is so diverse and there's so many different jobs you can do, well, then um, we're not going to have this kind of institutional memory that we thought we would. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that institutional memory point in a second when I want to talk about some specific policies. But one of the key questions that really I want to ask you is how much power special advisors have i think people might be really interested to know that because you know we've heard a lot actually over this pandemic about um you know advisors advising and ministers deciding and that's obviously the way it, it should be but really how much influence do special advisors have over their ministers the answer is it depends on the special advisor i mean some of them are uh, basically bag carriers who do uh, what they're told um, others are tremendously powerful and it really is up to the minister to decide what uh, their level of influence and power is and also the special advisor themselves to kind of come in and see what there is to be done. It's really interesting. I mean, the thing that I was told at the very start of being a special advisor when I worked at the, the Northern Ireland office where I was for about a year and a half was that it's really, really difficult to deal with the longer term kind of strategic stuff because um, you can get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, and I think I did get caught up in the day-to-day -to -day too much, but what some special advisors, and the most successful special advisors do, is see the long game and realize that there are, um, you know, the day-to-day -day will, will deal with itself, and getting too much in the weeds of, of a daily crisis is uh, perhaps not the best use of your time. It's really about the slightly longer-term stuff and realizing, okay, you've probably got, as I say, 18 months to two years, what are the milestones? What do you want to achieve? What are the tangibles? Because it's very easy. A lot of people are in ministerial office and there's nothing tangible to show uh, towards the end of it. The civil service will keep filling up your red box. They will find you things to do. There's no problem. But what we did and actually what one, uh, probably the best special advisor, well, definitely the best special advisor I ever worked with is a man called Liam Booth Smith, who's now the chief, uh, chief of staff to Rishi Sunak 
who said uh, when we worked together in the Ministry of Housing for uh, the, for James Brokenshire, who was then the uh, Secretary of State, is a great man, he's still a friend of mine. The the um the Liam said right, we need to decide now what are our priorities, what do we want to do, what is it that we're we we want to achieve in eighteen months, and then kind of work backwards and say by six months we want this, by uh, twelve months we want this. So that's that's what's most the best special advisors will do that and, and work that out. Yeah, so look, I, I'm i really interested actually in that long-term strategy stuff we were just talking about, you know, institutional memory. And something we talk a lot about on this podcast and in the Yorkshire Post is this idea of um, levelling up and the Northern Powerhouse and things like that. And like, I'm not I, I, I'm not saying that you can't work directly on those kind of things you might have done, but... Um, is that something that has kind of been in the consciousness of government for the last few years? Is that something that you've seen coming more to the fore or, or not really? I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the reshuffle in regard to the North, in regard to levelling up. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens specifically in relation to Jake Berry, because he's a really interesting character. Look, I know Jake, he's a friend of mine. Um, but at the same time, I, I hope I can give a, a reasonably impartial analysis in terms of saying that I think the power of Boris Johnson will be decided there's almost a barometer whether Jake is back in the cabinet mm. or not and I think that uh, there's a strong possibility he will be and I think that uh, the government realizes that the north is something which is really really important the northern powerhouse is really important leveling up is really important but that message kind of hasn't got through and I think a lot of people don't understand what is leveling up how can it be explained how can it get into the kind of modern lexicon? How can, you know, quite literally Workington man um, start saying, well, I can see the government is levelling up. And there's a lot of uh, bits of the budget that are little bits of funding uh, for high streets, for example, which is another thing that Jack is really passionate about, um, that are useful. But it's unlikely if even £10 million you know, comes to your town and things are spruced up a bit and there are, you know, a few nice nice things that you, you'll go, okay, I can see Westminster government has given us that money and therefore I should vote Conservative. I think it has to be a lot more. It has to be very, very tangible. And it, we have to get to a state, which is probably a generational project, actually. It's not going to happen in a few years, where living in, you know, Workington or West Yorkshire or wherever is... Um, as good and you have as many opportunities as living in London and I think it's really good that the government realises that because that should always be the case and I think there's been a very lazy assumption by successive governments both Labour and Conservative and Liberal Democrat of course as well that well the South East is where it's at you know that's that's where the the cultural governmental um, capital uh, industry financial capital is therefore um, there are more opportunities there and house prices are higher and all the rest. And I think that uh, people have been left behind. But, but getting that concept across and realising, allowing people to realise what government is actually doing for them is, is a very tough thing. And actually, I think free ports uh, will be something which will be a very tangible uh, thing that people will see and say, oh, right, OK, well, I now know what a free port is, uh, which is something that a lot of people still don't know. But once they have one, in their backyard, they'll realise. Well, you know, they know they'll know people who work in the Freeport. They'll know that about the the tax implications and the customs implications and how that can actually drive local growth. Um, so it's it's a long term project, but it will happen, I think. And I think this government is very very committed to it. 
Yeah, and I, I know you're a big supporter of uh, free ports as well, and I think we're finding out as we as we record earlier on in the in the week from Friday when this will be released that um, the Humber Freeport has uh, had the highest score, I believe, in the kind of rankings of who should who should get one. So that's Excellent. very well, encouraging. Well done, Humber. Yeah, well done, Humber, indeed. Um, I think that point about this being kind of a generational project is really key here because I wrote actually quite recently a piece saying. That if you know if people are expecting for this leveling up agenda to deliver by 2024, then that could potentially spell some problems for the government. If people go to the ballot box in 2024 and say, "Well, we were promised better life chances, but we haven't got them yet," is the, is, is do you think the challenge here then is communicating to people that they have to be a bit patient? Yeah, it's a real risk actually to say you know your life is going to be you know perfect by 2024 in terms of leveling up. No, I think there is it is a long term project, and it's interesting because. In terms of the priorities of the 2019 election, such as you know, get Brexit done, for example, that's a very tangible thing that has happened. Obviously, there are a few bumps in the road, but it's it's happening. And the sky hasn't fallen in, and things are are fine. And I think with the AstraZeneca row, people are realizing that you know it, t- it took a lot to unite the Remainers and the Leavers, uh, but you know <laughs> Ursula von der Leyen has uh, has somehow somehow managed it, and we're all pining pining for those erstwhile days when. Uh, the European Commission was run by, you know, a drunkard. Uh, so, um, you know, helpful. Thank you, Ursula. But, um, you know, get Brexit done, really tangible, really understandable. People realise it's done. It's fine. The second bit of that, Unleash Britain's potential, of which levelling up was a key element, is much more difficult to both do and communicate that it's done. So I think mm-hmm. we'll be able to point, the Conservatives will be able to point to some things that are 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 done and some improvements that are there by 2024, but it's naive to think in that short space of time that there can be a, you know that that all all problems can be solved essentially and that the the leveling up can happen. I think it's a generational project, and I hope that whoever the prime minister is after Boris Johnson, and I dearly dearly hope it's Rishi Sunak because I think he's a brilliant man. Um, it will be will be fully committed to that, and if it is Rishi, then I think I think you'll be fine. Uh, the problem will be if it's someone else, either within the Conservative Party or, or in the Labour Party, who I don't think are committed to this. Yeah, Rishi, of course, being a Yorkshire MP, so knows the uh, right. knows the issues very well. I'm sure can only can only help. Yorkshire. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Richmond, great place. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely, and I think one of the interesting points there as well is, um, you know, if we're gonna get that message across, I think having Jake Berry kind of inside the tent, as you will, will help the government with that rather than having him kind of outside the tent making a lot of noise, which he's been very good at recently. Yes, Jack is very good at making a lot of noise. Um, the, the question, I suppose, is uh, how much more influence, you know, uh, that, that he would have within government than if he were to be put in a department such as, for example, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, which I think he'd be very good at and which would be, you know, central to the, um, the levelling up agenda. Um, is he going to just have to do what he's told? And uh, if there's one thing I learned... Uh, from my time working with Jake Barry is that he's, he's not brilliant at doing what he's told he's, he's very good at doing what he wants to do and that's a good thing and you know you should have politicians with independence of mind and independence of spirit but you know the NRG is really influential at the moment and I think when they are against something or whether they're for something it can mean a huge you know a huge boost or a huge problem for Boris Johnson and um, so on um, the numbers as well I mean of course if there were to be any 
kind of major issue. You, you know, Boris Johnson could lose his, his majority. I'm not saying for a, a second that, you know, the NRG simply, you know, it's not a homogenous group, as you, of course, know far better than anybody, Jerry, because you speak to them all the time. But it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just very, very interesting in terms of how these groups have kind of emerged, and specifically the NRG, which I think is the most powerful within government. And I think if I were a voter in the North or a reader of the Yorkshire Post sitting in Yorkshire, I'd be very, very glad that the NRG exists because it means that, um, you know, people's voices are being heard at the very highest level all the time by MPs who are, yes, they're inside the tent a little bit and not their conservatives, but their um, their loyalty is to their constituents and their loyalty is to the people who are, you know, especially in those red wall, blue wall seats, um, often with quite small majorities. I think a number of those MPs sort of think, well, you know, it might not be here in a few years, might as well just go for broke um, and take a few risks. And uh, they don't particularly feel as if, their fate is perhaps that aligned to Boris Johnson, um. So they're they're definitely nice and you know nice and nice and um, uh, bullish and uh, put and um, putting through their their point of view. So I think that's a really good thing uh, for for those constituencies. If I was in government, I wouldn't like it, obviously, because uh, when you're in government, you want everybody to sit down and do what they're told. Uh, but uh, certainly for 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 the voters, uh, I think it's a really good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've really got that sense from speaking to a lot of, you know, NRGers, you know, former Red Wall, Blue Wall Tories who, you know, are conservatives through and through. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, the values align or they wouldn't have said the conservative MP, but really do feel I get the sense more loyalty to their constituents, maybe, than their party. And I, I do think, yeah, that obviously keeping them on side has got to be got to be a priority. And I think that takes us really to the last kind of thing I want to speak about today, which is just kind of <laughs> how do you tackle this general government goings on? But how do you feel like, I mean, obviously we've had a massive pandemic. How do you feel like when we take into consideration levelling up and things like that, and then how the government is generally operating, how on the outside now, are your, what are your reflections there? I think that it's been a very, very difficult period for any government. Obviously, the last year has been tremendously difficult, unprecedented times. And yes, mistakes have been made. And yes, lessons must be learned and all those kind of other cliches. But I think it's, you know, it it, it is in general, I think the vaccine project is what's going to, is, is the, you know, forgive me for using a medical term, but the panacea for all of this. Because <laughs> in politics, it's always about what people remember um, and often you know people forget so much stuff when it comes to an election and a lot of politicians can be very frustrated by the fact that you know, they have perhaps put a lot of time and effort and perhaps money into doing something which then the, the electorate don't reward them for necessarily as they would see it and the electorate say well that's not really what it's about it's about what you'll do for me in the future but if we look back on this time I think what people will remember are 125,000 people dead I think people will remember Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle because that really seeped into the consciousness of, of the public. Um, but I also think people will remember the vaccination program. I think they will remember uh, how tremendously successful that was and it is at the moment and it will continue to be despite um, the problems which, which may be ahead. Uh, the fact that, and I think people may well remember, certainly business people may well remember furlough in terms of saying, you know, the government was there for people when they needed them to be there. They quite literally put food on the table um, and stopped the collapse of many businesses, especially small businesses. I mean, the vast majority of businesses 
in this country have far, you know fewer than eight employees. We are a country of of, of small businesses, of, of strivers and people with, who employ their friend or their brother or their sister or whoever, um, rather than rather than huge businesses, which of course make up some of the economy, but not a huge huge amount. Um, so it's really really important to remember. I think that. Um, people forget a lot of things, but they will remember, I think, what's important on the net kind of balance sheet of the last couple of years is, is I think, pretty positive for the government. And I, I hope people remember that in 2024. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that the Conservative Party, of which I'm still a member, uh, can uh, can win a, a fifth historic term. I think, you know, Keir Starmer is a, a, a wet blanket. Um, I just don't think he's landing any blues. And I think the team around him aren't particularly good either. Um, I don't think there's there's a lot of people really who can properly oppose. Um, although obviously when 2024 comes up, I think you'll maybe see the return to the front bench of some people like Yvette Cooper, uh, who's really really good and definitely to be feared. I think if they have any sense, they would promote someone like Stella Creasy, who is um, not greatly loved in the Labour Party, but an absolutely brilliant Labour. Um, opposition politician who can make a lot of noise and make some really really good points and just a very you know brilliant media performer as well so i think i think you know labor has a huge job to do if it wants to win in 2024 um i think the conservative party probably can hold on um probably with a reduced majority but the north will be absolutely essential to that and i think we're going to hear even more once we get beyond coronavirus or beyond the, the the major part of coronavirus after the summer, I think we're going to see a lot more ministers in the north. I think we're going to see a lot more announcements um, and uh, and money directed there. And I think it's going to become a real, uh, I mean, it is a priority, but even more of a priority and a very visual priority as well. Um, and I think uh, you'll be, uh, Jerry, I would imagine sitting on a few trains uh, interviewing a few politicians um, for, for the Yorkshire Post. I look forward to my uh, my tour with uh, various ministers around the country. In that Absolutely, case, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll survive on my uh, my um, which is one of my conference diet actually of Greg sausage rolls and um, very strong coffee. Oh, so breakfast sure. of champions! Absolutely, no, why not? <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for coming on uh, Pod's Own Country today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Zone Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts, whether that is Google, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or of course iTunes. Um, we would love it if you could leave us a review or subscribe, tell your friends, share us on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Jerry underscore E underscore L underscore Scott. And I'll be back next week with another episode. So we'll see you then. If you crave technology that leads, if you appreciate design that inspires, if you want driving dynamics that excite, meet the one. The remarkable BMW 1 Series. Featuring front and rear parking sensors, cruise control, fully digital display with navigation and real-time traffic information, along with BMW's latest voice control intelligent personal assistant, all a standard. Meet the one with your own exclusive video consultation. Book yours today at bmw.ie.